You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The reading for today is from Matthew 21, 1-27. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread out their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from, the, from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they're indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven? Or of human origin. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Uh, let me pray. Uh, uh, gracious Father, uh, we thank you that we can come together and listen to this, your word. 
Uh, and we do ask uh, that you would open our eyes to see who our Lord Jesus is afresh, uh, that he is your true king and temple through whom we can connect uh, with you. Uh, we pray in his name. Amen. I was thinking during the week, I wonder if anyone here uh, is a fan of that TV show Glee that used to be on. It was probably more popular about 10 years ago. Uh, Glee, actually, I wasn't much of a fan of it myself. I didn't watch very much, so sorry if you're a, a big fan. Uh, and not that it was a horrible show, but I did watch one of the highest rating episodes of Glee ever. So I'm told, I looked up the stats on Google. Uh, it was an episode called Grilled Cheeses. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it. It's an episode that focuses on the spiritual journey of one of the characters named Finn. And one day Finn's making himself a delicious grilled cheese sandwich. And lo and behold, the face of Jesus himself manifests on top of the sandwich. You, know, you can't, can't believe this. This is miraculous stuff. And so Finn, uh, having discovered his grilled cheeses, says this. Uh, he says, well, I'm not the most religious guy, but this is different. So I decided to see what it felt like to pray. Dear grilled cheeses, Finn says, first of all, you're really delicious. Uh, please uh, help us to win our football game. In return, cheesy Lord, I'll make sure we honour you this week in Glee Club. Now, well, whatever you might think of Finn's kind of so-called prayer here, uh, the reality is it reveals something about where lots of people in our community are at. Well, lots of people in our community would consider themselves to be spiritual, but not religious. Well, the stats bear this out, at least to some extent. In, in 2017, the McCrindle Research Centre surveyed Australians about their spiritual and religious beliefs, and at least 15% of Australians said, I consider myself to be spiritual, but not religious. One respondent to the survey said, just because I don't believe in God or go to church, that doesn't mean I can't connect with people or things in a spiritual way. This is not uncommon for people to consider themselves to be spiritual, but not religious. And maybe you've met some people like this. I was talking to a friend of ours just the other day. Uh, at this point, she really doesn't want a bar of Jesus or of the church, but she checks her horoscope basically every day, and she's regularly talking about how to best channel the spiritual energies in her life, in her house, in her every, you know, like She considers herself to be spiritual, but not religious. In fact, the vast majority of people throughout history have at least considered themselves to be spiritual. They've understood this world to not be all there is, that there's something supernatural beyond this natural world, a God or gods beyond this world. They've also almost universally thought that there's a bit of a gap between this natural world and the supernatural, a vast chasm even. So basically every human society has had something like a temple. What's a temple? A temple's a place where the supernatural is said to be accessible. The supernatural is said to break in to this natural world. And that's where we come to this passage from Matthew chapter 21. Because in today's passage, we see that Jesus is God's true king and temple. Uh, so in connecting with Jesus, we connect with God himself. That's my big idea. Jesus is God's true king and temple. So in connecting with Jesus, you connect with God himself. 
So if you don't have a Bible open, it'd be great if you can have it open or the passage is on the welcome card there. Uh, we're going to look first at verses 1 to 11 where we see that Jesus is God's, God's humble king. Uh, in verses 1 to 7, we see that he's God's humble king who really needs a donkey, which is a bit weird. Uh, if you look at verse 1, you, you'll see that Jesus, is, uh, as he's approaching Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples into a nearby village called Bethpage, probably on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And he sa- and uh, in, um, oh, sorry, on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. Uh, if you look down in verse 17, uh, it seems like Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives. Uh, in verse 21, I think Jesus refers to the Mount of Olives. And in chapter 24, Jesus delivers his final block of teaching where? At the Mount of Olives. Right? Well, what's with all this focus on the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem? Well, it's because of a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. Zechariah 14, verse 4. Zechariah says, uh, On that day, the Lord's feet will stand where? They'll stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives, Zechariah says, will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. You see, even from the very first verses, the geography of this passage is telling us what? It's telling us that Jesus is God's King. Jesus is God's King who's coming to Jerusalem via the Mount of Olives to rescue and restore and reign over God's people. Jesus is God's king. So as God's king, he commands two of his disciples to go into this village. He says to them, uh, go into the village, verse 2, ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Uh, If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So if you've been journeying with us through Matthew's gospel, you'd know until now, Jesus has really been quite reluctant to reveal his true identity as God's king. He's sort of tried to keep it under wraps a bit. But now he knows it's time for him to reveal himself. Later on, you might want to read John chapter 12. It's a bit of a a parallel account in John's gospel, John 12 verses 1 to 13. And in that passage, it's clear that Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem here about five or six days before the Jewish festival of Passover. Uh, So Jerusalem would have been absolutely bursting at the seams, like a massive influx of people to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus wants all those crowds to see who he is, to see that he is God's true king, the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, So why does Jesus think that a donkey is going to help with that? How how is Jesus going to show that he is God's true king? Well, he must have a donkey, he seems to think. Why is that? It's because of another prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, quoting from Zechariah 9, verse 9, Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, which is another way of speaking about Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you. How does the king come? Well, he comes gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Zechariah predicted hundreds of years before that one day God's king would arrive in Jerusalem on a donkey. Why? Because God's king is a humble king. 
God's king is a gentle king, a servant king. A king who we heard a couple of weeks ago came to serve, not to be served. He came to embrace a path of suffering before his glory. He came to bear his cross before his crown. He came in weakness rather than in power. Jesus is God's humble king, his gentle king, his servant king. But he's still God's king, isn't he? And in verses 6 and 7, we see Jesus' kingly power and authority in at least two ways. You you might be able to spot more in this passage, but two things. Uh, The first is that Jesus' disciples hear his commands and they do what he commands. They understand the the hierarchy here. Right? Jesus is the king, he gives the commands, and they obey the commands, even if it doesn't make sense to them. That's a good lesson for us as disciples of Jesus. And the second thing you'll notice here is that it's implied that when the disciples enter the village, they find things exactly as Jesus predicted, which tells us that Jesus, as God's king, rules over every detail of his world. He rules over everyone and everything so that he knows exactly, to where, to, exactly where to find a donkey if he needs one. He knows where all of them are, and he can track one down right when he needs it. Right? Jesus is God's humble king. And he knows that he needs a donkey. That's verses 1 to 7. Then verses 8 to 11, we see Jesus is God's humble king who's welcomed and worshipped on a donkey. Take a look in verse 8. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us a very large crowd, first of all, spreads their cloaks on the road before him. And maybe you think that's a little bit weird. We wouldn't do that today. Why would these crowds do that? Well, write down 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, unless you're an exceptionally quick Bible flicker. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, the king of Israel, King Jehu, is arriving in Jerusalem. And we're told that the people hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jesus is king. So when these crowds spread their cloaks on the road before Jesus, it tells us that they're starting to see who Jesus is, that Jesus is God's king. And Matthew also tells us they cut branches from nearby trees and and lay them on the road. Uh, John 12 verse 13 tells us they're palm branches, which maybe you've seen this. The, the, The Sunday before Easter in the church calendar is often called what? It's called Palm Sunday. That's because of this event. Right? But by laying their cloaks on the road, laying these branches on the road, these crowds are showing great reverence before Jesus, real humility before Jesus, because they know that he is God's king. He's deserving of their worship, which is exactly what they do in verse 9, isn't it? They worship Jesus. They praise Jesus. Hosanna to the son of David, they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And maybe your Bible's got a footnote that, that says that that word Hosanna was, uh, is a Hebrew uh, expression that originally meant uh, Lord save us or something like that. But it, it evolved to mean a general cry of praise. We praise you. We bless you, the crowds are saying. This crowd is worshipping Jesus. Why? What do they say? Hosanna to who? To the son of David. They're starting to see who Jesus is, the son of David, something that takes us back to a promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's another verse to write down, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
And the promise in 2 Samuel 7 is that one day God would send a descendant of David, a son of David, who would establish and rule over God's eternal kingdom. So you see what the crowds are realizing here. They're welcoming and worshiping Jesus as God's promised king, the king who will rule over his eternal kingdom. And that's reinforced by that other statement, which is a direct quote from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you were a Jewish person uh, arriving in Jerusalem, you would have sung a, a group of psalms culminating in Psalm 118. Uh, so on one level, the fact that the crowds are singing Psalm 118 isn't that special. Uh, it's just what they would have done. Uh, but the fact that they link it to this idea of Jesus being the son of David makes it really quite clear that they're welcoming and worshipping Jesus as God's king. At least they're starting to do that. They're starting to join the dots. Verses 10 and 11, if you look at verses 10 and 11, they show us that they've still got some questions. Look that, we see there when Jesus entered, the, uh, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the crowds don't explicitly say Jesus is God's king. But it's pretty clear that they're starting to join the dots, that Jesus' arrival, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, is all wrapped up with God's kingdom coming into the world. They're starting to see that. But there's a hint here that not everything's going to go well for Jesus as God's king. There's a hint here in the fact that they call Jesus a prophet, and in a couple of chapters' time, in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus is going to say this about the, uh, Jerusalem and the prophets. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who do what to the prophets? You who kill the prophets. That's Jerusalem's reputation. God keeps sending them prophets, and the people of Jerusalem keep killing them. Things are not going to go well for Jesus. Yes, he's welcomed as God's king in Jerusalem, but it won't be long before he's killed as God's king in Jerusalem. Jesus is God's humble king who is welcomed and worshipped as God's king uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, second, uh, look in verses 12 to 22, and we see there that Jesus is God's authoritative king. Uh, who, in verses 12 to 13, condemns a temple with no worship. Uh, look at verse 12. This is a bit of a, a, a well-known story. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He enters the temple and he drives out all those buying and selling. He overturns the tables of the money changers. Uh, he uh, overturns the benches of those selling doves. And he's doing all of this in the outer courts of the temple, which were also known as the courts of the Gentiles, because it was the only part of the temple that non-Jewish people, that's the Gentiles, uh, that's the only part they could enter. Uh, the money changers here, uh, those are the people exchanging Roman money for Jewish money uh, every year, uh, Jewish males had to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, and when they did, they had to pay their annual temple tax at the temple. Uh, but they could only do that with the old Jewish currency of the shekel. Uh, so when they arrived in the outer courts of the temple, these money changers would have set up their tables. They come with their, their Roman coins, and they exchange them for Jewish shekels so they can pay their tax. Right, right in the space where other people were trying to, where the Gentiles were trying to worship God. 
And then just next door to them, there were people selling doves, which I imagine weren't that quiet inside the temple, you know, flapping around and, and doing whatever they were doing. Uh, doves were the prescribed sacrifice for anyone who couldn't afford to offer a lamb or a goat. I think about all this commotion going on in a space that was supposed to be dedicated for the Gentiles' worship, for their prayer. So look in verse 13. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56 verse 7. He says there, my house, oh God says in Isaiah 56 verse 7, my house, which is the same as my temple, uh, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So Isaiah is predicting that one day there would be a place in God's temple for people from every nation to pray to him, to, to worship him. So what's Jesus doing? He, he's, when he clears out the temple here, he's literally and symbolically creating a place for people of every nation to come and worship God. That's what he's doing. And Jesus also says that the Jewish religious leaders who run the temple have turned the temple into a den of robbers. Pretty scathing. He's basically labeling these leaders a pack of thieves. Their ministry in the temple is just a cover-up for their own greed, Jesus says. In fact, in Jeremiah 7, verses 12 to 15, you should look up Jeremiah 7 later on, uh, God goes on uh, actually to say that he's going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. So what's Jesus doing? By quoting these verses, he's saying that God is about to destroy this temple. He's condemning it. He's rejecting it. Why? Because in Jesus... He's about to create a completely new temple, a completely new way through which people can gain access to a relationship with God, a place where absolutely anyone can connect with God and experience all the blessings that come from that, which is where verse 14 comes in. We get a taste of those blessings, don't we? The blind and the lame are welcomed by Jesus. They're healed and restored by Jesus. People who would have normally been excluded from the temple because of their disabilities. I'm thankful that I come to God through Jesus, the the new temple. Because I'm blind, right? Well, half blind at least. Praise God for Jesus. So look in verse 15. Just like the crowds in verse 9, the children in the temple cry out to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. And you can maybe imagine with Jesus turning over tables in the courts of the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and teachers of the law who run the temple, they're not that happy about it. Right? Matthew says they're indignant. Now, these Jewish leaders make their living from the temple. So what Jesus is saying and doing here is threatening their very livelihood. So in verse 16... Jesus responds to their uh, criticisms by interpreting the praise of these children in the temple as a fulfillment of a particular psalm, Psalm 8, verse 2. You can read there's a lot of Old Testament uh, quotes in this passage, isn't there? Psalm 8, verse 2. Uh, But the point of the quote, what Jesus is saying, is the children of Israel get who I am. The children of Israel are rejoicing at who I am and what I'm doing, and yet you, the fathers of Israel, the guardians, the the religious leaders, you are rejecting who I am and what I'm doing. Even the kids get it, Jesus says, and yet you're completely blind to it. The Jewish leaders are rejecting Jesus, so in verse 17, Jesus rejects them. 
right? He, he leaves these religious leaders behind and he leaves their temple behind. Jesus is God's authoritative king who condemns a temple with no worship and Jesus is God's authoritative king who condemns a tree with no fruit. That's the connection between those two parts, verses 18 to 22. Look in verse 18, it's the next morning. Uh, Jesus is on his way back into Jerusalem. He's getting hungry. Maybe he didn't have any br- a muesli bar for breakfast or whatever. Uh, and so he sees a fig tree in the distance. He thinks, I could get some fruit from that tree. He goes over to the tree, but there's only leaves there. Uh, and so he says to the tree, may you never bear fruit again. He condemns the tree, and immediately the tree withers. That's all a bit of a strange episode, isn't it? Uh, Jesus, is he just kind of cracking it, you know? What's, you know but the, we've, it's important to know that actually in this part of the world, in Palestine, uh, you can only really get figs between June and November. That, that was the season for figs. Uh, so if these events are happening five or six days before the Passover, which was in April, then it's not even the season for figs right now. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us just that. Mark 11 verse 13 says it wasn't the season for figs. Now, it's not just that Jesus is cracking it with this tree. He knows it's not the season for figs. He's making a point here. There's some sort of symbolic meaning about what he's doing. Uh, So we've got to look for that, and we look for it. We find it in the Old Testament, where we see that often in the Old Testament, a fig tree symbolizes fruitless and faithless Israel. Uh, One example is Jeremiah 8, verse 13. God says, I will take away their harvest. Uh, There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. And their leaves will wither. You see what's going on here in condemning this tree. uh, Jesus is saying that Israel and the temple are failing to produce the fruit that God expected. Uh, So he's rejecting them. He's condemning them. Just like he does with this tree. In verse 20, the disciples say, well, how did the tree wither so quickly? Uh, The words of which echo Hosea chapter 9, verse 16, uh, which says, Israel is blighted, their root is withered, they yield no fruit. So some people, if you read stuff about this passage, they'll say, this is the cleansing of the temple which is kind of true, but it's not actually far enough. Jesus isn't just cleansing the temple here. Jesus is completely condemning the temple. Jesus is saying that this temple and the whole religious system around it is completely corrupted. It's withered at the roots. It needs to be uprooted and replaced with a completely new temple, a completely new way for people to access relationship with God. Uh, And so in verses 21 and 22, he tells his disciples, don't put your faith in the temple, put your faith in God. Uh, And express that faith by praying, Jesus says. Now, there's a bit of detail here, and maybe you want to talk to me over in the park after if you've got more questions, but I think that this mountain in verse 21 is once again the Mount of Olives, right? Jesus is on his way back into Jerusalem, and I think he says, this mountain, this mountain right here, Uh, So when he's talking about the removal of the mountain into the sea, he's talking about the coming of God's kingdom. Because remember, we we already saw in Zechariah 14, what's going to happen when God's king comes to Jerusalem and God's kingdom comes, the Mount of Olives is going to be removed. Uh, So Jesus is saying to his disciples that through your faith-filled prayers, you can actually participate in the coming of God's kingdom into his world. 
God will use your prayers to bring about the coming of his kingdom. That's a promise that we can still uh, hold on to today. Jesus is God's humble king, God's authoritative king. And third, he is God's heavenly king. This is the end of the passage, verses 23 to 27. Uh, Verse 23, Jesus is uh, back in Jerusalem. He's returned to the temple. Uh, So the Jewish leaders come to him with a question that they've specially prepared. They say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, what gives you the right, they're saying, to clear out our temple, to condemn our temple? And they're essentially asking Jesus for his credentials, which on one level is fair enough. I reckon if someone came in here right now and knocked over my music stand and started tipping over chairs and tables, I'd probably say, what gives you the right to do that? Give us your credentials. But every religious organisation has some sort of process whereby they officially recognise and authorise the leaders of their church. That's a very important process. Uh, Of course, the disadvantage of that sort of process uh, is it can be manipulated and abused by those who've already been approved to control those who haven't been approved. That's what's going on here. These Jewish leaders are using their credential process to try and control Jesus, preserve their own power, and stir up trouble for Jesus. How will they stir up trouble? By getting Jesus to publicly declare that his authority comes from the fact that he is God's king. They know that if they can get Jesus to do that, they'll report it to the Romans who only recognize Caesar as God's king. And it'll cause Jesus all sorts of trouble. So it's quite a clever question, a very wise question on one level from these Jewish leaders. But in verses 24 and 25, we see that it's no match for Jesus' wisdom. Jesus displays the wisdom of one who's been sent from heaven. Look at what Jesus says. He says, well, I'll also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, right? That's John the Baptist, John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? What an incredibly wise answer from Jesus. First, because look at verse 26. You see there that the prevailing view amongst the people was that John's baptism came with God's authority. John's ministry was endorsed by heaven. A second, like Jesus, John's ministry was never officially approved by these Jewish leaders. So third, the Jewish leaders, uh, if they even vaguely believe that John's ministry came with God's authority, they should also believe everything that John said. The trouble with that is that John went around telling people that Jesus was God's king. So you can see that these Jewish leaders are stuck. They don't know what to do. Jesus' answer here shows, so his question here shows that he has the wisdom of someone sent from heaven. Uh, So verses 26 and 27, he has the authority of someone sent from heaven. The Jewish leaders know that uh, if John was sent by God, then uh, if they say that John was sent by God, they're also conceding that Jesus was sent by God. If they say that John wasn't sent by God, then they risk a massive backlash from the crowds. So verse 27, they simply say, we don't know, we're stuck. And so Jesus says, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. So I started today by talking about that episode from Glee, uh, Grilled Cheeses. 
Uh, you can look it up later on. Uh, I mean, we, we can all have a laugh at, at, at Finn praying to his grilled cheeses. It is a little bit funny. Uh, the reality is we're not that different to Finn. Not that different in the sense that God created all of us to, to find our identity and freedom and life and purpose uh, in having a relationship with him. Uh, so all of us do have this deep desire to connect with something more, something ultimate, something supernatural. Ultimately, to connect with the God who made us. We have this deep longing for that. The problem is, like Finn, uh, we all settle for the various grilled cheeses of this world. We're mixing and matching with various forms of religion and spirituality, all in a vain effort to try and connect with that something more, something spiritual, something ultimate. All these things that, that claim to be able to connect us with God, but in the end bear absolutely no fruit. A bit like the temple in this passage. But not Jesus, right? Jesus is God's true king. Jesus is God's true temple. In fact, in John's gospel, uh, right after Jesus clears out the temple, he says this. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The, the, Jew, uh, the Jewish leaders replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're, you say you're going to raise it in three days? Uh, but John explains the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, when Jesus clears out God's, uh, clears out the temple here, he's saying that in him, God is establishing a completely new temple, a completely new way for people to connect with him. He's saying from this point on, you can only connect with God uh, by trusting that upon the cross, his body was broken down for your sins. His body was taken apart or was brick by brick for your sins. And then on the third day, it was rebuilt, it was resurrected, it was raised to form a new temple through whom you can have access to the God who made you. So if that's you, if you long to connect with something more, to connect with something ultimate, to connect with the God who made you, and then my encouragement for you today is to stop messing around with the grilled cheeses of this world and start trusting in Jesus. Trust in Jesus for he is God's true king. He is God's true temple. And in connecting with Jesus, you're connecting with God himself. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes to see who Jesus is, uh, that he is your true king, that he is your true temple, and that in connecting with him, uh, we can connect uh, with you. Uh, I pray for anyone who is yet to put their faith in Jesus, I pray that they would, even in this moment. I pray for those who already trust in our Lord Jesus. Uh, may they be strengthened in their uh, relationship with him and draw near to uh, their heavenly father this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.